One of the undeniable realities in life is that things wear out. Whether it's our favorite pair of jeans or the car that we put thousands of miles on and don't want to part with quite just yet, sooner or later, we're reminded of the truth that in this life, nothing lasts forever. Or another way to say it would be that everything has an expiration date. We're all quite familiar with that term. We see it on the food that we buy all the time. Now, I know there's differing opinions to how fastidious or how closely we should hold to that expiration date, but I, for one, hold to it quite closely. If it even creeps up near that time that is stamped on there, I grow quite suspicious and usually toss it. But there is nothing in this world that is immune from this reality. Everything physical that you see will one day expire. Even we will expire. Because of sin being introduced into this once good world through man, the consequence and punishment for us all is death. We aren't going to live, for in, we aren't going to live forever in the body or the house that we currently reside in. It isn't going to last forever. Now, this can be an extremely depressing thought, or as it should be for us who are Christians, an incredibly joyous one as we wait in eager anticipation for what we're going to look at this morning. It was for Paul, who through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned our portion of Scripture this morning. As we look at the text before us, it's important to remember the man that God used to write this, Paul, because in his letter, the apostle reveals his heart for the Corinthian church as well as other matters that are dear to him throughout. Just as a way of background, 2 Corinthians gives us, as one commentator states, amazing insights about ministry as, as well as revealing glimpses into a minister's heart. You find some very near and dear topics and issues that Paul shares in 2 Corinthians. And one thing, and one of those, one of those items we're going to see this morning in our text. Paul shares his heart in some beautiful, honest, and revealing ways. For our purposes this morning, though, we need to go back to the end of chapter 4 to understand his line of thinking as we get into chapter 5. It begins in verse 16. So look back, if you would, with me in chapter 4, verse 16, where he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Now just stop right there. When you think about Paul the apostle, when you think about him, what in the world could he have possibly lost heart about? Very simply, it's the trials and continual persecutions of this life that he went through for his Lord. But how is he experiencing these trials? Or another way to say it would be, in what specific location are these trials being experienced by Paul? We'll look at verse 10. In his body. He is going through all of these things in, in his body. Look at verse 10. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, 
but life in you. And just look earlier, if there's any doubt, look earlier in this chapter in verses 8 and 9, where he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul felt every day the weight of what he was going through for the glory of the gospel in his physical body. Simply put, because of the continual physical sufferings of Paul and what he was going through, there was the continual threat of him losing heart, becoming depressed, wanting to throw in the towel. I mean, goodness, just remember, remember the list of, of, uh, and, and series of things he had talked about at the end of 2 Corinthians, uh, at the end of this book in chapter 11? It says in verses 23 through 28, just a portion of that text, he says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with, with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, and he goes on and on and on. Do you think there was a connection with him emotionally, how all of this that his body went through, how he just wanted to, Lord, how long? I think there was. And yet, when we go back to verse 16 and we get our running start into chapter 5, this morning, what does he say? Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. Beautiful words. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Very simply, he recognizes that his physical body is decaying and wasting away. But is that causing him despair, which it easily could have? Quite the contrary, incredibly enough. He rejoices because his inward man is increasingly growing stronger, or as we just read, it's being renewed day by day. I remember early on in our marriage when I think Hannah had just been born. Jen was discouraged with the early goings-on of motherhood, and she went and talked to my dad. And I'll never forget this because my dad took a little feather and put on her shoulder and said, how heavy does that feel? Jen said, not heavy at all. He said, not to make light of what you're going through, but all of the trials and what you're experiencing now in the moment that seems so large, in the long run, and in comparison particularly with what it will be like when you see him face to face, it's as light as that feather. I'll never forget that. Never forget that, beloved. No matter what you're facing today in regard to affliction or trouble, it cannot compare with the eternal weight of glory that will be beyond all comparison when you finally see him. One thing quickly to observe in verse 18 before we jump into chapter 5 is the play on words that Paul uses in verse 18. Look what he says. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? How can I look at that which I cannot see? 
I don't think he's talking about looking with your physical eyes. Look through the eyes of faith at what is coming ahead. Don't fix yourself on this world. Don't fix yourself just on these present realities because we know, as he just said, everything that you can see is perishing. It is winding down. It is wasting away. So what he's saying is use your eyes of faith to see what is there. Use your eyes of faith to see that which you cannot see with your physical eyes. The end of 18 tells us why. Everything we physically see, like I just said, is passing away. And it's because Paul is looking at his existence in this way that he can have hope. Even when he were to look in the mirror and his physical body is getting beaten and bruised and battered and there would have been a cumulative toll that would have taken its effect, he's able to look and not see just his physical body. He sees what God has promised in that leads us into our text this morning in chapter 5. Our main point for this morning is this regarding our text. Paul's body is wearing out. It is wasting away. It is decaying. But he does not despair. Why? Well, very simply because God has promised him a new one, a new house, a new tent, a new dwelling, And that's what takes us into our text this morning in chapter 5. Our text, once again, is is going to be 1 through 10. And just so you know, we're going to break 1 through 10 into three parts. Admittedly, we'll spend a little bit more time on the last section, so don't get get happy as we're zipping along quickly through the first two. Uh, Our first point is going to be found in verses 1 through 5. And that's the promise of a superior house. The promise... Of a superior house. We just read those verses, and from that portion of Scripture, Paul wants us to be aware of an absolute promise from God to us, and that is that when this body wears out or is torn down, as the text says, God will give us a new one. There's some key words that are repeated in this section that I hope you noticed. Many of them refer to the to the body. Look at it again in in verses 1 to 5. Words like earthly tent, building, house, and dwelling are all used to speak of our body, this body, the one that you're in currently. But the truth is that when this body dies, God will give us an eternal body that is infinitely better than the one that we currently reside in. You see, this body, what, what, what characterizes our current body more than anything sin. We feel its effects constantly. We have aches and pains and heartaches and broken bones and diseases and anxiety and depression, along with temptations and desires deep down that wage war against the God that we love. Remember Romans 7? Paul Paul said, I don't do what I want to do, and I want to do what I don't want to do. There's a struggle going on me that is wrapped up within this body. And the beautiful thing is that once this body's gone, that's what we're waiting for. So in just a little bit, I hope that our view of death as Christians should and can be very different from that of a non-believer. But what is this angst causing us very often? Paul mentions it right here in verses 2 and 4. He says a word, he repeats it, it groans. It causes us to groan. 
While we are in this tent, in this body, we groan. The Greek word actually means to sigh heavily. <sighs> and goodness, can you not feel that with me? Those days that, you're, that you feel the battle raging within you, that you want to do something for the Lord and yet you don't, or you feel a pain or an ache or it's a cumulative uh, nature of all of those three, it creates a groaning deep within us. But I don't think, while, while I do think that there's some type of that groaning because of the pain that we're in, I think there's another type of groaning also that is connected with that. And I think it more specifically has to do the, with the idea of having to wait in eager expectation for something and be patient. Have you ever wanted something to come so badly and so much that you're, <sighs> it hasn't happened yet? I think we have both of those in mind here because while it's a frustrating aspect of what we're going through, Paul also is sighing in the fact of, I cannot wait. I cannot wait when this body is finally done. God has done his redeeming work in my heart, and finally I cannot wait when I will get a new body that will go with the new heart that he has given me, and the two will come together. I think there's that kind of groaning as well. There in those two verses I see, we think, like I said, I think we see it taking on a dual connotation. But one day, beloved, while we're waiting right now, one day the waiting will be over. It, it's very hard, especially when you know something's going to happen, but you don't have a date fixed to it, to, to realize that it's going to occur. But don't forget that it is. Don't forget that while we have to wait now, we won't always. One day we'll, we, we will get a body that will be free from all sin and its effects. It will be free from the internal struggles that wage war against us deep within like I was talking about. It will be free of wearing down of the aches and the pains that so many of us deal with. It will be suited to be in God's intimate, holy presence and yet not be destroyed. What awaits us is truly glorious. While we're speaking of this new body we'll get, it's important to note that what Paul is making clear is that it's an actual physical body. That's what's waiting for us. We're not going to be ethereal spirits. We're not going to be angels on a cloud after we die. We are going to get a physical body that God is going to get us, and it's going to be fit for eternity with him. There are two more things I'd like to draw to your attention in this section, one in verse 4 and one in verse 5. Look at the play on words that Paul uses here in verse 4. Where he says, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that beautiful? He is saying that when we are further clothed with our new body, mortality will be done away with by true life. True life, in other words, lay ahead after death for the believer and not now during this period of living. Does that language remind you of something that he wrote in his previous letter to the Corinthians at the end, perhaps in chapter 15, when he said, for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's 
what we're waiting for. And the beautiful thing is that here in 2 Corinthians, Paul's reminding them of the truth that he had written to them in the first book. He is reminding them of the great mystery of the resurrection that he had originally written to them about. He does not want them to forget this important, comforting reality. Secondly, and the final thing I want us to notice in this section, is that this very reality, the truth that we will die and get a new glorified body, that's not something that Paul simply made up to make himself feel good or to make up the people to whom he was writing feel good. Whose plan is it? What does it say in verse 5? It says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. It is God's design. And it's his plan that we will get a new glorified body one day to be with him forever. And because it's his plan, beloved, you can take it to the bank. It is going to happen. It is something you can have full confidence and hope of. There's no chance of it not happening. How do we know this? Well, the primary way that we know this is by what he says at the end of verse 5. God gave us the Spirit as a pledge, or as other translations say, a guarantee or a down payment. When you come to Christ and the Spirit comes in your heart, that is a guaranteed sign that one day you will get this new body. That's what Paul tells us. It's a sure thing. So take glory in that. When the Spirit works in your heart, take glory in the fact that it's an evidence of this, that even though your outer man is wasting away, God has promised you a new one. He has promised, he has placed his spirit within you. And never forget, like Philippians 1, 6 says, for I am confident Paul also said this, of this very thing, that he who began in you, a work in you, will what? Perfect it. Bring it about at the day of Jesus Christ. And the way that that starts is by the spirit being in your heart. Let's move on to our second point, verses 6 to 8. Verses 6 to 8 is going to have the present housing reality. It's our present housing reality. What Paul does for us in this section is, in simple terms, give us the reality of how our existence is structured now. He does this by describing two realms. The physical, where we are now and where our body resides now, and the spiritual, or where the Lord is and where He resides like we did in the previous section, look at some terms that are repeated in verses 6 to 8. Good courage, home, body, absent, and away. It's almost like Paul, after coming off of, it, uh, off of his thoughts in verses 1 to 5, says this. You know what? Knowing that God is going to give us a new body, our attitude of walking through this life can be one of good courage or boldness. It must be a life lived in faith of what God has promised to do for us in the future. And the reason we can walk by faith now is because of what he says at the end of verse 6. We are not united with the Lord yet. In other words, if I'm still in this body, then I'm absent from the Lord. I can't see him yet with my physical eyes. I'm walking in full confidence that I will one day see him, but I haven't seen him yet, not with these eyes. Like it's been said before, I'm living in the already, but not yet. I'm in this in-between where I'm walking by faith. And that's why he makes it so important. He makes this important, needful interjection where he says, 
We walk by faith and not by sight. I love 1 Peter 1.8, though, where Peter says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. This life and our walk in this body now is chiefly characterized by trusting him with promises and realities that have not yet come to pass. But that does not mean that they one day won't. Verse 8, as we get to the last part of this section, I love. Paul, looking at, when he, he's just established the fact that I'm not with the Lord because I'm here. He's, he's drawing those, the, the two parts of how our life and existence is structured. But if we had our preference, beloved, wouldn't we rather be with him now? Amen? That's what Paul concludes this section with in verse 8. If we had to choose between staying in this body and being separated from him and leaving this body and being with him, it's not even a contest, right? It sure wasn't for Paul. Remember in Philippians 1, Paul said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is what? Far better. It's not even close, Paul says. Is that your preference, my friend? Are you ready to depart and be with him? Or are you holding on to the things of this world and not quite ready to part with the pleasures that they afford? Are you looking at what you can see or that which you cannot see? One final thing to note in this section is that there is no in-between stage for Paul. It is an either-or situation. You are either here in the body or you are at home with the Lord. There is no allowance here for the concept of purgatory. There is no concept of floating off into space for a period of time before you are united with the Savior. It is instantaneous for the believer that once we leave this life, we are in his presence. As soon as you breathe your last breath here, you are immediately in the presence of your beloved. What an encouraging thought. What a beautiful comfort. And I would suggest to you that that was the single most that was the chief thing that Paul probably had in his mind whenever he would go through these beatings, whenever he would go through something that would take ra ravage on his body, that would just wreak havoc. He knew that if he were to leave this life, immediately he would see the one whom his soul loved. Let's move into our third and final point this morning. And that is found in verses 9 and 10. And that's going to be the proper perspective. The proper perspective perspective. In light of what Paul has just described for us in verses 1 to 8 up to this point, that, that being that God has promised us a new body when this one expires and wears out, and after reminding us that we can walk in bold faith knowing that as soon as we leave this body, we will be united with the Lord, he then sheds light on how those truths and realities should govern our everyday life and perspective in how we live out each day as it happens. In other words, he tells us what our main 
priority and goal in this life should be. And what is it? Look at verse 9. Simply put, it should be pleasing to him. His main ambition, his main goal, which I love the way that he says that, all he wanted in his life was to be pleasing to his Lord. There are so many peoples and groups in this life and in, in our surroundings that vie for our allegiance. But let me ask you, where does your ultimate allegiance lie? What is the driving force behind what you do in life? Or another way to say it would be, would be just to say this, what is your chief motive? What drives you? What are you working toward? For Paul, there was only one, and it was him. He wanted, above anything else in his existence, to please the God who had saved him. A favorite text of mine is Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We have been purchased, beloved, by the blood of the Holy One. We are no longer seeking our will, but the will of the good master and shepherd who loved us and laid his life down for us. I pray that the overarching desire in our heart is to please the Father, is to please the Son, and to please the Spirit who love us more deeply than we can possibly conceive or imagine. When that is our aim and ambition in this life, then we have no cause for hesitation or reason of trepidation when we think about that day when we will see him face to face. That day is verse 10. Look at verse 10 again with me. One day, all of the things that you go through, the busyness of life, all of our existence is going to have an end point. And when it is all said and done, you and I are going to stand before God. And that is what Paul says here in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I hope we think about that. I hope we think about that all of our life and all of the opportunities that God is and continues to give us has an end point. And there's coming a day, beloved, when you will stand before him, and as we're going to talk about in a second, you will give an account for how you used the good gifts that God gave you. But having that day in mind, when I say that day that we're going to talk about a little bit over the next, uh, over our remaining time, when I say that day, I want that to be in your mind, that I'm referring to that moment when you will stand and you will look at your God face to face. This should be the driving force behind everything we do in this life right now. This should be what we always have in view when we love and serve our family, when we love and serve our church, and when we love and serve Him in any capacity. We should order and prioritize our lives each and every day with that right and proper perspective that we will stand before Him on that day and give an account for how we have used the bodies, the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the physical strength that He has graciously given to us for the glory of His name. Is that your perspective? 
Do you order your life on a daily basis preparing for that day? We can get distracted once again by so many things in life that we deem essential but that won't be of the utmost importance when we stand before him. Let's take a moment and think about what that day will be like. You will stand before the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient Lord of glory. You will be looking at the one who gave you existence, who gave you breath, who gave you the body in this life to serve him and to make him known. What will matter most? What can you do now in order to prepare for that day? May I suggest that it starts deep down first with yourself, with your own heart? Are you preparing your heart to see him? How do we do that here in this life right now? Well, very simply, by spending time with him in his word and in prayer. And let me just recommend, this past week, Pastor Dave sent out a Bible reading plan. No matter what Bible reading plan you may choose, please choose one and spend time with your Lord each and every day. It is an area that I continue to struggle in myself and grow, but God gives grace. Amen? There is nothing more important that you individually can do to prepare your soul to meet your God than to spend time with him now. Heaven forbid we busy ourselves with the matters of life and spend no time with him while we're here on this earth, only to get to that day having spent minimal time with our Lord. Hear me now again, beloved. There is nothing more vital for you, that you can do to prepare for that day than communing with your God and getting to know and love him now. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, in the high priestly prayer? What did he say? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not something, brethren, that begins after we die. It starts the moment of our conversion, and eternal life is getting to know intimately your God, and that should be taking place now so that when you see him, it's not a matter of, oh, it's nice to meet you, God. I've been waiting so long to see you, Lord, and it's more of a reunion. I pray that that is our heart this year. So it starts with having our own heart prepared and ready for that day through knowing and loving him, and then the deepest of our priorities should branch out from there depending on our relationships and stage of life. For instance, my deepest priority should be that I know my God, and then it should be that, and, and that I'm prepared for that day. And then branching out, it should be that Jen knows her God and is prepared for that day. And then Hannah and Chloe and Lily and my church body and those who don't know him. But it has to start with me. I can't run out and not be tending to my own soul. I pray that that is the same for all of us. When we have our heart ready to meet him, because we've continued to get to know him through his word and prayer in this life, we can have confidence for that day. And what is that day going to be like? Well, very simply, he will judge us. He will, as the text says, recompense or give or repay us for how we used this body that he gave us to do his work. Now, remember, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and saying, we must all appear. So he is speaking to believers. This is a very important point. The judgment seat of Christ, which is what we're looking at in verse 10 of our text, 
is for Christians regarding rewards and an assessment of our motives for the things we've done for him while on this earth in this body. A connecting passage to support this would be in 1 Corinthians 3, when he says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So once again, this is a time of reward for the believer. What we did out of pure motives for him will remain as an offering to his glory. Everything else will be burned up. So I pray the moral of this story is to whenever you serve him, make sure it is out of a pure heart. Don't serve the Lord out of wanting people to see you or what you have done. You don't want anything to be wood, hay, or straw and be burned up. Do everything. Once again, do you see the connection between verse 9 and verse 10? If our ambition, if our aim, if our entire goal in life is to please him, that transitions into verse 10 to when I stand before him, I don't have to shy away. I can stand before him confidently because of the heart that has been preparing to meet him. It must be emphasized, though, that in no way will our sins be brought up during this time. In conversations I've had with other Christians throughout the years, it almost seems like they think that once we get to heaven, even us who are believers, we're going to stand before God. He's going to have a big movie screen. He has to, he's going to show all of our sins, all of, the, all of our failings. He's got to go ahead and get that out of the way, and then he's going to let us into eternity, that we have to experience shame or guilt in some capacity before we go in. But that's not true. And why isn't that true? The cross. Because Jesus took my shame. Because Jesus took my guilt. Because he took my sins, all of the sins who would ever put their faith in him, and they were nailed to his cross. So that when I think about that day now, when I think about what it's going to be like to go and stand before my Lord, I can do it with boldness and I can do it with confidence. Because my sin has been dealt with, and I am just eager, and I am excited, and I cannot wait to see my beloved. But my friend, maybe you're here this morning, and you've never put your faith in Jesus. This whole thing of what we're talking about, the judgment seat of Christ, that's for believers. Maybe you have not yet put your faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. Could I just beg you to reconsider you see, as it sits now, no matter how good you're feeling about the possibilities of this new year and what they could hold, you're not ready for what matters most. You're not ready for that day. And if you're not in Christ when you die on that day, the Bible says very clearly that you will not stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, but you will stand before him at the great white throne judgment talked about in Revelation chapter 20 and give account for all of the sins that you've ever committed. Remember, that is the chief difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in regards to where our location, in, in regards to where our sin is and the location of them. There's only two ways to die. You can die in Christ or you can die in your sins. Friend, you do not want to stand before him on that day having to account for your sins. The good news is that you do not have to. 
If you turn from your sins and confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. And when you stand before God, you will not stand before him having to account for your sins, but you will stand before him as the lover of your soul and the one who paid for your sins. Paul, at the end of this chapter, says so much in his very brief summation of the gospel in verse 21 at the end of chapter 5, where he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As we finish up this morning and think about what we've looked at, let me ask you, what is your main aim and ambition in this life? Is it for a bigger house, a better car, a larger bank account? Or is it simply to be pleasing to him no matter what he may call you to do? Are your current priorities in line with that simple goal? Are you using the strength and health in your current body that he's given you today to serve him with all of your might? Are you being used up in a good way ministering to others? Or are you rusting for lack of use? If you're a Christian, what is your view of death? Are you terrified or, like Paul was, are you waiting in eager anticipation knowing that he has promised you a new house that will be fit for eternity and fit to live with him forever? And finally, what is your plan for 2020 as we stand on its threshold? It is my prayer for you that you would make it a point to prepare each and every day of it for that day when you will finally see him face to face. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time with the saints. Spend time sharing his most great and glorious gospel with others so that they too may be ready for that day. And as my dad wrote in a Bible he gave me many years ago, remember, beloved, on that day, it will be worth it all. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so overwhelmed at your grace. We fall so short continually of what we need to do to prepare, Lord. I am the first one to admit that. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here this morning that you would spark in them, that you would awaken in them a, a renewed love of your word, a renewed love to spend time with you in prayer. Lord, let each of us commune with you and spend time with you so that when we see you, after you've given us this new body that is fit to be with you forever, that we're not, we don't approach you as strangers on that final day, Lord. Work in our hearts. May we labor for the gospel while you've given us strength today, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in his name. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.